Our sermon text for today is from Isaiah chapter 40, beginning in verse 9. Again, this is the Holy Word of God. Give it your careful attention. O Zion, you who bring good tidings, get up into the high mountains. O Jerusalem, you who bring good tidings, lift up your voice with strength. Lift it up, be not afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God shall come with a strong hand, and His arm shall rule for Him. Behold, His reward is with Him and His work before Him. He will feed His flock like a shepherd. He will gather the the lambs with His arm and carry them in His bosom and gently lead those who are with young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, measured heaven with a span, and calculated the dust of the earth in a measure, weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has directed the Spirit of the Lord, or who, as his counselor, has taught him? With whom did he take counsel, and who instructed him and taught him in the paths of justice? Who taught him knowledge? And showed him the way of understanding. Behold, the nations are as a drop in a bucket. And are counted as the small dust on the scales. Look, he lifts up the isles as a very little thing. And Lebanon is not sufficient to burn, nor its beasts sufficient for a burnt offering. All nations before him are as nothing. And they are counted by him less than nothing and worthless. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare to him? The workman molds an image. The goldsmith overspreads it with gold. And the silversmith casts silver chains. Whoever is too impoverished for such a contribution chooses a tree that will not rot. He seeks for himself a skillful workman to prepare a carved image that will not totter. Have you not known? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is He who sits above the circle of the earth, and and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He brings the princes to nothing. He makes the judges of the earth useless. Scarcely shall they be planted. Scarcely shall they be sown. Scarcely shall their stock take root in the earth. When he will also blow on them. And they will wither. And the whirlwind will take them away like stubble. To whom then will you liken me? Or to whom shall I be equal? says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these things, who brings out their host by number. He calls them all by name. By the greatness of His might and the strength of His power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my just claim is passed over. By my God, have you not known? Have you not heard? 
the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the weak. And to those who have no might, he increases strength. Even the youths shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fail. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. The word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we ask that, you would, that we would learn from this passage. We need illumination from your spirit so that we understand and obey. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear and minds to receive and hearts to love and obey. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. When you look around at at what's going on in the world, or maybe in your life, do you ever get apprehensive or even fearful? Does it make you concerned about the future? Maybe there's another law passed that takes away more of your freedom. Or you see Christians losing their jobs and being sued because they won't affirm homosexuality or transgender issues. Or maybe it's the crime rate, or the economy, or technology. It's actually getting to the point where the idea of the, cover, of the government always watching you, it's getting to be a possibility. What about the Muslims and terrorism, or the potential of going to war somewhere? Those are all national or global concerns. What about something more local or or even personal? Like a tornado hitting your home. Or a life-threatening illness in you or in someone in your family. When you think about all of those things, all the things that can go wrong and do go wrong, it can be depressing. It's a great way to start out a Sunday morning. The world is not a safe place. Ever since Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, the world has not been a safe place. So with a world like that, what do you do? How do you cope? Where do you turn? Well, one very good place to turn in the Bible is Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah lived through a very, he he lived through a far worse time than we have ever experienced. And as God's prophet, he tells us what we need to hear. God called Isaiah as a prophet in Jerusalem in the year that King Uzziah died. Now that's significant. Uzziah was a good king. And he had reigned for 52 years. 
During his reign, the, the kingdom of Judah expanded its realm and the kingdom of Israel expanded its realm so that together they, their realms were almost as large as the glory days of Solomon. And Uzziah and Judah were following the Lord. But near the end of those 52 years, conditions were beginning to change. The next four kings of Judah after Uzziah were Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, and Manasseh. And Isaiah was a prophet during all of their reigns. Assyria, to the northeast, had recently become a powerful and well-organized nation, and they were on the march. They were conquering everyone around, and it wasn't long before they went after Israel and Judah. And when Ahaz, the grandson of Uzziah, became king of Judah, he was wicked, and he didn't follow the Lord. When his enemies to the north began to close in, instead of listening to Isaiah and trusting in God, he sought help and protection from the Assyrians. And he turned to their gods. He even sacrificed his sons to their gods. So God delivered Judah to their enemies. And one of those enemies was the kingdom of Israel. In one day, the army of Israel killed 120,000 soldiers of the army of Judah. Talk about a bad day. How many mothers and wives were grieving that day? Manasseh, he was the grandson of Ahaz, he was arguably Judah's worst king. His reign of wickedness lasted 55 years. In fact, it's not recorded in Scripture, but tradition holds that Isaiah was sawn in two by Manasseh's men. It would take a long time to go through all of the horrors and bad things that went on during the reign of Manasseh, and we're not going to look at those things. But just realize, it was a hard time to be a person who followed God. So Isaiah was a prophet during very tumultuous hard times. The overwhelming message through the first 39 chapters of this book that he wrote is one of judgment. Judgment for Judah and Israel and the surrounding nations. On the timeline of history, this is when Assyria destroys Israel, the northern kingdom. But it's still over 100 years before Judah is destroyed by Babylon. It's at this point here in chapter 40 where God gives Isaiah a new message. Instead of judgment, now it's a message of comfort and hope. As God shows Isaiah the future. And as he sees the future, Isaiah sees that Jerusalem is going to be conquered. They're going to be destroyed and the people will be taken away in exile. That doesn't sound very hopeful or comforting, but Isaiah sees beyond the future. He, he sees beyond that. After exile, they will come back to the land, and they will be, rebuild the temple. 
In fact, even though it's over 100 years into the future, at the end of chapter 44, Isaiah says that Cyrus is the name of the king who will tell the people to return and build the temple. And then, looking farther into the future, he sees in chapter 53 the coming of Jesus, on whom is laid the iniquity of us all. And then in chapter 65, verse 17, he tells of the new heavens and the new earth, which will be so fantastic, the old won't even be remembered anymore. So Isaiah does have a message of of great comfort and hope, even though there's going to be a lot of pain and trouble and death along the way. So how does Isaiah declare this message of comfort and and hope at a time when when things are really bad? Well, in verse 9, he says, O Zion, you who bring good tidings, get up into the high mountains. O Jerusalem, you who bring good tidings, lift up your voice with strength. Lift it up, be not afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, behold, your God. Announce it from the mountaintops. This is your God. He starts with you who bring good tidings. Israel was supposed to be the nation through whom all the other nations were blessed. They were supposed to demonstrate and proclaim the glory of God to everyone else. They were supposed to bring good tidings. But they themselves forgot God, and they did completely the opposite of what they were supposed to do. They worshipped the gods of the other nations. So you might expect that God would abandon and completely destroy them. And as the people go through the events that Isaiah sees in the future, there will be times where it will look like God has abandoned them. But Isaiah notes God will not abandon his people. So as he sees into the future, he also sees God. And he says, behold, your God, there is nothing, no one that compares to him. In verses 10 and 11, they're like an overview of his message. They introduce what Isaiah has to say about God. In verse 10, He tells of God's strong hand and his arm. He says God is incomparable in his power. And he tells more about God's power in verses 12 through 17. Then also in verse 10, he says that God's reward is with him and his work or recompense is before him. And what he is saying there is that God is incomparable as the personal God who sees and judges perfectly. He sees everything. So he judges perfectly, and then he illustrates that in verses 18 through 24. And then in verse 11, by describing God as a shepherd that tenderly cares for the ewes and the lambs, Isaiah shows God to be incomparable in his love and care for his people. And he goes into more depth in that in verses 25 through 31. So so Isaiah tells the people of Judah at this time 
And he, he tells the people in exile in the future as they read this. And he even tells us today, behold, look at your incomparable God and know him. Now, one of the things that we are often awed by, and sometimes we fear, and some people even worship, is some aspect of nature. I mean, nature, it can be fearsome. If there's a tornado or, or an earthquake hits. In verse 12, Isaiah asks five metaphorical questions to show how the greatness of nature pales in comparison to the greatness of God. He asks, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Have you ever seen the ocean? There is so much water, it just looks like it goes on forever. And we know that that water covers almost 75% of the earth's surface. We've barely begun to explore and understand all that's in the oceans and the seas. And yet, It's a simple matter for God to hold all of them in the palm of his hand. Well then, who has measured the heavens with a span? To us, the heavens are vast. Even with our best telescopes, we can't even see all the stars, let alone count them. And we measure distances out there in light years the distance light can travel in a year. We look at a nearby galaxy and determine it's two million light years away. We can't even fathom that. And God measures it all with a span between his thumb and little finger. Well then, who has calculated the dust of the earth? And the word for dust there is the same as dirt. Who has calculated all of the the dust and dirt of the earth in a measure? Can you imagine trying to measure all the dirt, the sand, the dust of the entire earth? And the word measure there, it's, it's a smallish container, a third of a basket. It's not much to God. And who has weighed the mountains in scales? And the hills in a balance. God can easily balance all the mountains and all the hills on just a tiny scale. To us, the universe is vast. It's it's uncontrolled. It's powerful. But to God, it's a tiny thing. A thing that he has complete control over. And Isaiah wants us to understand that the infinite power of God is equal to, in fact, it's far greater than any situation that arises. If we better understood God's power and had it more embedded in our souls, even when terrible and grievous disasters occur, we would be assured that none of that was out of his control because his power is greater than all. Now, of course, God isn't just a force of power. Along with that great power, well, there has to be great knowledge and wisdom to use it. And in verses 13 and 14, there are a string of rhetorical questions that 
reveal the greatness of God's understanding. The first is, who has directed the Spirit of the Lord? And the word for directed there, it's the same as God measuring the waters. Who has measured or understood God enough to tell Him what to do? Who, as His counselor, has taught God? Who has ever taught or instructed or counseled God in anything? Who has ever shown God anything that He didn't already know? It's all absurd to even think about. God's knowledge is equal to His power. It's infinite. So why do we tend to fear the wisdom of man? We have our academies of higher learning. We have our scientists and our our great technology. There is no doubt that we have learned quite a bit. But even if you take all of the greatest, largest computers, the state of the art, you hook all of their processors together to create a massively parallel computer, it would still be a joke in comparison to the wisdom and knowledge of God. Okay, so God is all-powerful. And He knows everything. Everything about the world. But, we object, we're down here. We're dealing with people, wicked people and wicked nations. Who knows what they're going to do next? Well, Isaiah anticipates that objection in verse 15. He uses three similes there to expose the nations for what they are. A drop in a bucket, the smallest speck of dust on the scale, or just a tiny little island. The nations are a very little thing. If you listen very carefully, you'll be able to hear just how much the power of all the nations adds up to. You have to listen carefully. Plink. That's it. That's all the great technology, the great nations today can muster. Just a tiny drop in the bucket. It is our God who governs the world. Therefore, we have to be careful not to exalt the nations and the people who govern them in our minds. Because when we do that, we forget who really governs in the affairs of men. God is in charge and He sovereignly rules and overrules as He pleases. No one can prevent Him from doing that and no one can force His hand in anything. So God, He's so great. What does a people do for such a great God? Well, in the Old Testament, they offer a sacrifice, right? That's what Isaiah describes in verse 16. Let's make a sacrifice so great, it's fitting for this great God. To do that, the Israelites would go to Lebanon. That's a place renowned for its great forests and for its vast numbers of cattle. It would be like us taking all of the redwoods, the redwood trees of California, to build a huge altar 50 miles square and 10 miles high. It would be giant. And then 
we would offer on it all of the cattle of Texas. Imagine that barbecue. That'd be huge. Surely a sacrifice like that would show how great God is. But Isaiah says it wouldn't be sufficient. It would be a puny sacrifice in comparison to the greatness of our God. And then verse 17 concludes with this reminder. All the nations are counted by him less than nothing and worthless. And what's true of the nations is equally true of all of those people and all of those things that we tend to put in the place of God. They're counted as nothing and worthless. So hopefully at this point, you're convinced that God is incomparable in his power over everyone and everything. But we know that he's much more than power. He's much more than knowledge. He's a living, personal God. And that fact is stressed throughout the Bible. One instance of it we see in Isaiah chapter 37. The Assyrians had conquered Israel and all of the cities of Judah except one. Only Jerusalem was left. And now the Assyrian king Sennacherib and his army, they were ready to lay siege to Jerusalem. He sent his captain to taunt the men of Jerusalem and to blaspheme Yahweh. Well, King Hezekiah in Jerusalem, he trusted in God. He went to God and prayed for the living God to deliver them. And that's exactly what God did. He killed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in their sleep. The next morning, the whole army was dead. He is the living God who sees and hears and knows even the hearts of men. In verses 18 through 20, Isaiah talks about the non-living idols that you make from wood and precious metals. And you look at that and you go, well, surely today we're, we're not into that, right? I mean, when's the last time you saw someone bowing down to an idol and offering food to it? Well, today's crazy enough. Maybe some of you have. But aside from statues, idolatry is still an issue for us. Anytime you or I make any person or any goal, any institution, any possession or, or anything else equal, equal to or higher than the living God in our loyalties or our priorities, well, we've immediately fallen into idolatry. That's the essence of idolatry. <clears throat> Giving to... <clears throat> That's the essence of idolatry. Giving to anything else the devotion that we owe to God. So in verses 18 through 20, Isaiah has a field day as he teases them about the ridiculous effort to make a proper God. I mean, if you want to make a proper God, well, it, it should be coated with gold so you can give it some value. And of course, it should have some silver jewelry, just like people do. And 
if you're too poor to go to all that expense of, of gold and silver, <clears throat> well, then you should examine the wood carefully. I mean, after all, it would be horrible to have your God come down with a case of termites or, or to rot with fungus. Oh, and, and one more thing Isaiah adds is he's rolling on the ground laughing. Nail your God down. Can you imagine how bad it would be to have your God fall over and break? Remember the problems the Philistines had with their God Dagon? Back in 1 Samuel 5. His head and hands broke off. This business of making a durable God is difficult. But our God is real. He's living. And all the people, the forces, and the interests that tend to become our idols, they're just as ridiculous as the blind, dumb, and deaf statues that people have worshipped. Why are we so tempted to treat things like that as if they're more real and more important than God? Every time we give first place to our jobs, our leisure activities, our life goals, our worries, our family, our friends. We show that our view and our estimation of God is greatly inadequate. Our God is the one and only true and living God. As Isaiah says in verse 22, He sits above the earth and He sees all. Even the mightiest rulers are like grasshoppers before him. He sees and knows all, even our thoughts. And since he knows all, then he judges perfectly. As it says in Hebrews 4, 13 that we read earlier, there is no creature hidden from his sight. But all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Everything is open to God, and He is the perfect judge. He makes no mistake. Well, this personal seeing, knowing, and judging, it applies to the rulers and to the authorities on earth as well. God has complete control over them. But of course, some rulers think of themselves as a god. They think they're above the law and more powerful than other gods. Like Sennacherib, for instance, in Isaiah 36, verse 20. His captain said to those in Jerusalem, Who among all the gods of these lands have delivered their countries from my hand? That Yahweh should deliver Jerusalem from my hand. No god can defeat me. Yet Yahweh showed all the Assyrians how puny their army really was. In verse 24, the rulers of the earth are compared to a tiny seedling. The seed is, is sown, and its, its tiny roots begin to grow into the soil as the little green plant pokes out of the ground, ground and, and its leaves unfold. How many princes or, or judges ever think of themselves in that way? Like a tiny seedling. Before God. Yet that's how Isaiah describes them just before God blows on them 
and they wither up and blow away. It's God who gives life. He appoints people to positions of leadership even over the nations. He determines their time in office despite what those who plot military coups think and despite how populaces vote. That's because God is a living person. He sees all. He knows the hearts and thoughts of men. No one can restrain his power or outwit him. No one can upstage his program. The authority of God is superior to that of all rulers, governors, dictators, presidents, congresses, mayors, elders, fathers, or any other position of authority that you can think of. We each may have our positions of authority, and yet we stand naked before him to whom we must give account. So God is incomparable in his power. And he's incomparable in his person as the living God who sits above the earth. Maybe, just maybe he's so powerful and so high that I'm insignificant. Maybe we're so small, we don't matter. Or we're missed among all those other little grasshoppers out there. Well, in this last section in verses 25 through 31, Isaiah addresses that thought. He shows that God is incomparable in his loving care for each one of us. And the first way he answers that is in verse 26. Isaiah says, lift up your eyes on high and see who created these things. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. He's talking about the stars. How many stars are there? Well, the best that today's scientists can do is is start guessing. They estimate that there are 100 to 200 billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy. It's a pretty funny estimate. It could be this many that's way too big to count, or it could be twice that many. And then they give a wild guesstimate as there may be around 10 trillion galaxies. Okay. Well, at an average of 100 billion stars per galaxy, that would be one septillion stars. That's a one with 24 zeros after it. Well, what that all means is that with all of our technology and with how smart we think we are, We have no clue how many stars there are. Now, what's that have to do with what Isaiah is saying here? Well, there are a little over 7 billion people on earth. It's safe to say there are way more stars than there are people. And not only does God count the stars, but Isaiah says he calls them all by name. He has a name for every one of them, and he keeps each one in its place so that none are missing. So if all of that is no problem for God to keep track of, and if he's so careful that he even names each one of those septillion stars and constantly keeps each one in its place, 
It's easy for him to know all about you and everyone else. And Jesus made a similar point in Luke 12, verse 7. He said, the very hairs on your head are all numbered. God knows the tiniest detail. Of course, for some of us, that number is far smaller than for others of you. But the fact is, he cares for each one of us just like a good shepherd takes care of every, every lamb and every you. But, you say, if that's true, then why is this happening to me? Why is life going this way? God isn't paying attention to me. Well, isn't that what Israel is saying in verse 27? Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord and my just claim is passed over by my God? God isn't paying attention to me. This isn't just a one-time question. What Isaiah is asking is, why do you keep saying this over and over? Throughout their history, the people of Israel have made it clear. They don't like it when things don't go the way they want. They don't think God sees their way of trial and trouble. And they think God's not being just with them. Right now, they're being trampled on by the pagan nations around them. What does Isaiah answer to them in verse 28? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The words that Isaiah has been saying address this. And so have all the prophets throughout Israel's history. The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary. His understanding is unsearchable. God is the creator. He's not a creature. He's not like us. He doesn't depend on anything else. He doesn't get tired. His power is incomparable. It's infinite and he knows and understands everything. Not only is Israel's way not hidden. It's precisely because God knows Israel's way that they are being judged. They've turned from God to worship idols. They're weak before the nations because they've looked to idols and to pagan kings for their strength. But as it says in verse 29, it's God who gives power and strength. It's actually because God loves them, that he does not bless them when they follow idols. Now, we typically think, those of us who are older, we think of young people as having an abundance of energy. I mean, just watching them makes you tired. But Isaiah says, the energy of youth, that will fail. Even the strength of the mightiest soldiers will fail. But who will not fail? Who will not become weary? Well, it's those who wait on the Lord. Now, just just what does that mean? The word wait there means more than to just sit in your chair and watch the paint dry. It contains the underlying idea of trust. It's the kind of, of confident expectation that's willing to put time in God's hands and trust Him no matter how long it takes. 
It's both a complete dependence upon God and a willingness to allow Him to decide all the terms. To wait on God is to admit that we have no other help, neither in ourselves or in someone or something else. Therefore, we're helpless until He acts. To wait on God is to declare our confidence in His eventual action on our behalf. So waiting on God is not just killing time. It's a life of confident expectation, trusting in God to act as he sees fit. And it's when we wait on God like that, when we give up our own frantic efforts to control everything, and we turn expectantly to God, it's then that we will renew our strength to endure the trials, the difficult things, and to walk with our God. So in in Isaiah chapter 40, we're shown that God is incomparable in His power. There is nothing that even comes close. He's incomparable as a personal God so that He sees and knows everything and judges perfectly. And He's incomparable in His personal, detailed love for each one of us. And our place is to confidently trust Him and follow Him and obey and love Him. Now probably, very little in all of that is new to anyone here. Some of of you would say, well, yeah, we've heard those things many times. And yet, many times we find ourselves living as if God really isn't powerful enough. He can't handle what's happening right now, so I have to take over. Or, God doesn't see what I'm doing, so I can get away with it. Or, God really doesn't love me, because if He did, He wouldn't make life turn out the way it is right now. In every case... God doesn't measure up. He doesn't measure up to your standard. He doesn't do what you and I want. We compare the incomparable God to our standard. And we expect the incomparable God to conform himself to what we want. What does Isaiah say? Have you not known? Have you not heard? This is the creator of the ends of the earth. He sits above and he sees and knows all. This is the God who when you were hopelessly guilty and condemned, he loved you and sent his only son to die for your penalty and then to take you to himself As his own child. Everything that he does is the best that can be. And in God's perfect plan, we sit here as fallen people still living in a fallen world. So we're constantly bombarded by the world with with temptations, with unbiblical definitions of success and 
and the good life? When you go to work, is everyone there thinking and saying, well, the almighty, all-knowing God knows and loves you. Is that what they say at work? When you're out in traffic or at the store, is everyone around you thinking, you're a child of the living God? That's what some of those people driving look like, right? If you turn on the TV or you watch a movie, are the makers of the show and the actors trying to remind you that God reigns and you need to trust Him and live for Him? Obviously not. And most of the time, it is completely the opposite. And then even at home with your family, do your kids constantly see what it's like to know and love God and wait on Him? Is that what's lived out day to day in your home? I mean, just, just like the Israelites, we're constantly putting other gods in place of the true and living God. So we can't just hear about God, who He is once or once in a while, and agree with it and, and then move on. I've always liked the way that J.B. Phillips' Bible has worded Romans 12.2. It says, don't let the world around you squeeze you into its mold. We're always being shaped, squeezed, even discipled to something. The fallen world is actively trying to get you to be a person who lives like God really doesn't matter. The world is discipling you and your children if you have them. It's constantly working on you to put something else in God's place. So our attention and work on that needs to be constant and continuous as well. If it was up to us, we wouldn't stand a chance. But it's not left up to us. Christ died and rose again, and now His Spirit lives in you and is working in you. And this is where waiting on God is not just sitting and doing nothing. You need to work with God's Spirit as He works in you. And you do that by setting up patterns, and habits in your life that disciple you in Christ and His Word. Things that counteract the efforts of the world as it tries to squeeze you into its mold. You need to look at the people that you spend time with and the things that you do. Do they pull you toward God or do they pull you away from God? You and I need to frequently come back to places like Isaiah 40 here to remind us what's real. You need to be in church every Sunday, hearing and practicing God's Word through the liturgy of the whole service. Participate in small groups so that you're learning and, and rubbing shoulders with and praying for one another. You need to constantly teach your children and remind one another that God is all-powerful. He's equal to anything that happens. He's all-seeing and all-knowing. When He judges, it's perfect. And He personally 
loves you just as he loves his son Jesus. You need to constantly put yourself in situations that teach you and remind you who he is. He's your God. And there are none that compare. Behold your God. Trust him and proclaim him from the mountaintops. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are the one and only true and living God. Thank you that you have given us your word. And by your spirit, you give us understanding in it. Thank you that you have begun a good work in each one of us. And you will continue that work until you complete it. Give us that confident assurance that you truly are all-powerful. That you know everything. And even as you know us intimately, you love each of us as you love Jesus. Keep us from the ways of the world so that we worship and follow you and you alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.